Father Almighty, I pray that this would be a place where your presence is known. Lord, I pray that this little church would be thick with your presence this evening. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts so that we desire to be with you as much as your Son, Jesus Christ, desires us to be with you. Amen. There's a common conception floating around that Jesus cleansed the temple because the merchants and the money changers were cheating people. This explanation makes a lot of sense to us because we know that Jesus cared a lot about what we do with our money. We know that he cared a lot about being honest. We know that he cared a lot about the treatment of the poor. And we know that the temple elite are rarely the good guys in the gospel stories. This explanation that he went after them because they were cheating people makes sense to us. But if we listen to what John says in this passage, the only criticism that Jesus actually levels against the merchants and the money changers is the fact that they are making the temple into a marketplace. He doesn't actually accuse them of dishonesty. He actually just doesn't like the fact that they are there at all. Now, the idea that he, they were cheating people comes from the fact that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke report Jesus as saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is a much longer explanation than we can fully get into. But even that quote that Matthew, Mark, and Luke report isn't primarily about theft. Jesus is stringing two Old Testament passages together, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Isaiah 56 is a passage that says that God promises to the foreigners that they can come into the temple. Jeremiah 7 is a passage where God actually declares that he will destroy the temple because of the pervasive sin in society. In Jeremiah 7, the sin is listed. There's injustice, particularly for the widows, orphans, and immigrants. There's sexual sin. There's idolatry. There's great sin in the society in that passage. And the people are looking at the temple and they're using it to justify their sin. They're saying, God wouldn't let us have this temple if we were doing anything wrong. And so Jesus, by stringing Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 together, is actually saying to the people, not you're robbing people. They might have been. But his point, even in that quote, is that you are refusing Gentiles access to the temple. And you're using the temple to justify the sin in society as a whole. In other words, his issue, even in that quote, isn't primarily about whether or not these particular merchants and traders were corrupt or not. His instant use of that quote is to say to the people, you're misusing the temple as a whole, and God's going to destroy it because you're using it poorly. But John actually is not concerned about those things. The only thing that John actually brings up is Jesus' displeasure with the fact that commerce is going on in the temple at all. And so that's what we're going to investigate. Why is Jesus bothered that there are traders and merchants in the temple? Why did he care that the temple was being turned into a marketplace, a house of trade? 
It's not that Jesus is anti-commerce. Instead, he's actually saying that the temple is being misused. This is commerce in the wrong place. The temple had a specific role. It was a place for people to come into the presence of God. That's its whole point. It's the place where people can come into the presence of God, where people can come and gaze on the glory of God, where people can come and seek forgiveness from God, where people can come and bring their needs, their confessions, their thanksgiving. It was the only place that you were guaranteed to meet God. This is the point of the temple. It was the place where you could be in the presence of God. And yet Jesus looks at it, and he sees that it's been turned into a noisy, busy marketplace. Worship has been turned into a noisy, mechanical, financial transaction. You can see it going on. Get the right coin. Change your coins here. Take it down there. Pay the right tax. Take it over there. Buy the right dove. Take that to the priest. He'll sacrifice it for you. It's the mechanical and financial operation. This mechanical and financial operation was destroying the heart of worship. It was destroying the quiet that was necessary for people to pray in the presence of God. It was destroying the peace necessary for people to adore God or to confess their sins. And Jesus is bothered by this. He's righteously and zealously angry. He's so bothered by it that he makes a whip. And we can see him driving the animals out of the temple, throwing the tables over, spilling the coins on the ground. We can see him saying to these people, you are preventing God's people from praying before him in peace. You're preventing people with your noise from confessing their sins. You're preventing people with all of this mechanical operation from understanding that worship is about adoring God from the heart, about penitence, about coming before him with empty hands. You've destroyed the understanding of worship and turned it into a mercantile system. You're distorting worship by turning it into a mechanical routine. And so Jesus is angry and he throws them out. The most startling thing that he does though in this moment is what he says afterwards. Because the Jewish leaders come up to him and they say, we need a sign to prove that you have authority to do this. It's interesting that they don't actually question the validity of his action. They likely knew he was right. They likely knew he was dead on, that this whole system that had grown up was perverting and preventing the true worship of God. They don't say this was wrong. They say, by what authority do you do this? Give us a sign of your authority. The reason they demand a sign is because in the Old Testament, it's only the Messiah. It's only the king, perhaps a high priest, maybe one of the greatest of prophets. It's only one of those sorts of people who have the authority to walk into the temple and to cleanse it, to purify its worship. We actually see this when the good kings come onto the throne in the Bible. One of the first things they always do is purify the temple. And it's only a king, a Messiah, who has that sort of authority. And so they look at Jesus and know his action is right. 
But the question is, do you have the authority to do what you've just done? Give us a sign of your authority. And so Jesus gives them a sign. Tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He gives them a sign of the highest caliber. In fact, the sign is so big that they can't actually act on it. It's inconceivable that they would actually take him up at this challenge, that they would actually tear down the temple. They can't test his authority because they're unwilling to test his sign. And so the confrontation is over, at least for a moment. He's given them the sign, but they can't step forward into the test. But of course, John tells us, that the disciples after the death and resurrection realized that Jesus wasn't actually talking about the temple of stone and gold. He was talking about the temple of his body, which amazingly means that the Jewish leaders did test his sign, not with their knowledge of what they were doing. They did tear down the temple that he was referring to. They did actually end up testing his authority. And by raising the temple in three days back, Jesus proved in the resurrection that he had the authority to cleanse the temple worship. It's an interesting story. In identifying the temple with his body, Jesus did something remarkable. In this movement where he refers to the temple, but he's really referring to himself, he does something remarkable. In technical language, Jesus is saying that the temple of stone was a type now, before I lose you, this one's not hard to explain. A type is an object or a pattern from the old covenant that corresponds to something greater in the new covenant. It's an object in a pattern on earth that corresponds to something in the heavens. It's like a picture that God painted in the Old Testament to reveal a greater reality to come in the New Testament. So, for example, Red Sea. Paul tells us that this was a type for baptism. It's a picture, a living picture painted in the Old Testament that's designed to help us understand something in the New. Manna is a type for the Eucharist. The Old Testament tabernacle is a type for the heavenly courts above. We find this out in Hebrews. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was a type for the father's sacrifice of Jesus. Now, these types were given to the people of God so that they would be prepared for the real thing, the greater reality to come. See, that's what types do. They train us to think rightly, to feel rightly, so that when the greater reality comes, we get it and we understand what's going on. It's like a prophecy in action. But the types also help us understand the greater reality. So if we think about baptism, corresponding to the Red Sea. The Red Sea shows us God's passage through water that saves us from our great enemy, Pharaoh. Pharaoh being a type for the devil. With that understanding of the Red Sea, we suddenly realize that baptism is a greater reality, but it's still a safe passage through water where we are saved from our great enemy. With manna is a type for the Eucharist, manna's spiritual food offered to pilgrims on a journey to the promised land to sustain them on their way. You see how this works. The Eucharist, the greater reality, spiritual food from heaven offered to pilgrims as they wander on their way to the promised land. 
types prep us for the greater reality and help us to understand them. And so what Jesus does is he says that the temple, the temple is a type for my body, my body itself. The temple, the place where every nation was to come into the presence of God. It helps us understand the body of Jesus, the place where every nation is supposed to come in the presence of God. The temple, the place where God's glory dwelt, he filled the temple with a light cloud of his glory. And if the temple is a type, that means the greater reality is Jesus' own body, where the glory of God overflows and fills him and is visible to all around. The temple, the place where prayers were heard and forgiveness offered, corresponding to the greater reality, the body of Jesus, the place where prayers are heard and forgiveness offered. In identifying his body with the temple, Jesus is saying that it's in my body that you are able to come into the presence of God. It's in my body that you see the glory of God. It's in my body where your sins are dealt with, your guilt is forgiven. It's in his body, he's saying, that we are able to come into the glorious presence of God. At this point, you may sit up and say, you just took 10 minutes to get me to a place where I already knew. I already knew that I come into the presence of God in Jesus Christ. I already knew that my sins are dealt with in the body of Jesus Christ. I already knew that the glory of God is poured out in Jesus Christ and shines through him. And if you've been an astute reader of John, John has already said these things to us in the first chapter. He's already told the reader that the word that is God dwelt among us, that it's in Jesus that we are in the presence of God. He's already told the reader that the glory of God fills the word of God. He's already told the reader through John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I may have given you an extra theological term, but I've taken you to a place you already know. But even though we all already know this, I think that there's something still here for us to ponder this evening. I think there's something for us to linger on for just a moment. I want us to notice as we hear the story, I want us to linger upon, I want us to pay attention to the zeal of Jesus. I want us to hear his passion in this story. He was willing to weave a whip. He was willing to flip over the tables. He was willing to drive the animals out, to pour out the money. He was willing to do these things to make certain that the people had a place to come into the presence of God. He was so zealous, so passionate that people would be in the presence of God that he was willing to make an enormous mess, to make a huge ruckus, to risk arrest and prosecution. This is how much he cared that people had a place to come into the presence of God. This zeal was not just for the people of Jesus's day. John tells us explicitly at the end of his gospel that he wrote these things down for those who had not seen them. In other words, John wrote this for us. 
The zeal of Jesus was not just for the people of his day. The zeal of Jesus is for you. The gospel has been written for you. And so I want to listen as we ponder the zeal of Jesus, what this proclaims to us. The force of this story is that Jesus is full of holy passion. He's full of righteous zeal that you would come into the presence of God. He has made this possible through the temple that is his, that is his flesh. But I want you to hear this very simply. He's not content for you to lead a successful and peaceful life. He's not content for everything simply to go your way. He's not content for you just simply to have enough to be at peace. He's not content even for you to go through the mechanics of worship. That was going on in the temple, the mechanics of worship. He wants something more for you. This is what drove him to smash through the marketplace scene and throw things over. It's one of the only places where we see Jesus display this amount of passion and emotion. And this passion and emotion is for one thing. I want my people in the presence of the Father. This is what he wants for you. He actually wants you in the presence of the Father. He wants you there in peace, listening to to him. He wants you there looking at the glory of God. And what's a little bit disconcerting about this story is that he's willing to actually knock over the tables in your life to make it happen. He's willing to pour out the money. He's willing to make a mess of things. He's willing to make things fall apart so that you would long for the presence of God. This is what that story says to us. His zeal is that you would be before the Father in adoration, confession, petition. And he is willing to make a mess of things if that's what he needs to do to get us to that place. And so if your life has been busy, if it has been so busy and full that it's been weeks or months since you stopped and really listened to the voice of God, if your life has been so harried and frenetic that it's been months since you sat still in the presence of God, you open your heart to his word to you. Listen to Jesus's passion. He longs for you to be in the presence of the Father. If the tables of your life right now are turned all over, if everything's gone all wrong, if the things are disrupted, listen to the voice of Jesus. He may be trying to get your attention and trying to call you back to himself, trying to say to you, quit replacing me with the system of getting everything right in life. If the tables of your life are all turned over, don't interpret the disruption as something for you to fix, to solve by your efforts. Instead, in the disruption, put first things first. Enter the presence of God. Ask him, what do I need to hear from you? Listen to Jesus' heart. Rest in prayer in the presence of God. Gaze on the face of Jesus. 
if you feel lost in this, if you say, I actually want to be in the presence of God. I want to know him. I want to see him. I want to hear his voice. I want my heart to long with Jesus's heart that I would be close to God, but I don't know how. If you say, I want to move there because I get that I'm building systems in my life to replace the peace that he might offer, trying to control things so that it all goes right. If that's the place where you are, but you say, I don't know how to enter in the presence of God, let me offer you a few simple ways. These are humble and they're not original, but all three of these ways are banked on the promise of Jesus. The first, retreat in quiet into his presence every day. Retreat in quiet into his presence every day. Jesus said that the Father who sees in secret sees us when we pray in secret. If your life feels devoid of the presence of God, retreat in silence into his presence. Put away the things that distract. Put away the things that harry. Set aside your to-do list. Speak your worries and your fears and your despairs out loud to the Lord, but retreat in silence. Wait for him in peace. He sees in secret. He promised as much. Read his word in those moments, not as a task to be performed so that you will be a good enough son or daughter of God, but instead read his word in those moments as words given from the Father to you, for you. Listen to him. Be quiet. Secondly, if you long for the presence of God, remember that he has actually promised to be present in the prayers and the praises of his people. Remember that he has promised to be present when his people gather to pray and to sing. Show up here, in other words, with longing in your heart to be close. I think so oftentimes we come to church just out of routine. Come with the expectation that he would speak. Come with the hope that he would make himself available to you. Expect that you would see his glory. And lastly, if you long to be in the presence of God, come to the table. Come to the table where he has actually promised to offer himself to us. Words that we know, but take them to heart, that he says, I will give you myself here. Come and expect that he would fill your empty hands with his very present. Come with a quiet heart, assuming that he will actually keep his promise, that he will actually give himself to you. Trust that he would meet you, that he would fill you, that he would strengthen you. As we close, let me say again, let me reiterate very simply, Jesus longs for you to be in the presence of the God. He made a way through his flesh, not solely so that your sins would be forgiven, but he made a way for you through his flesh because he longs to be close to you. Hear his heart. He wants you near to him. Amen.